Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. It's Tuesday, October 18th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In August, Florida resident Tony Patterson was arrested in his front yard. In footage released today, the police are reassuring him that Bond has dropped to a mere $500 per charge. Patterson doesn't seem to think that's a particular bargain. In the back of the squad car, Patterson wonders aloud what the hell is happening to him, and the arresting officer somewhat commiserates, because the charge is illegal voting. And then I thought my fucking out, uh, feelings were able to vote. That's why I signed a petition, if I remember. Why would y'all let me vote if I wasn't, uh, I wasn't able to vote? I'm not sure, buddy. I am sure. While felons did get their vote restored in 2018, not all felons did. And Patterson was one of those whose convictions didn't make him eligible to vote. But Patterson's brother, who advised him to vote, didn't know that. And he didn't know that. And the official at the polling place that allowed him to vote did not know that. So now, two years later, he's handcuffed in the back of a police cruiser while the police officer admits... Dude, these, uh... I've never seen these charges before in my entire life. That's because the prosecution of illegal voters, even by those allowed to vote by officials at the polling places, is the brilliant new initiative by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. I said brilliant, not fair, or decent. By targeting 20 or so illegal voters who by definition committed felonies so heinous, such as sexual offenses or murder, DeSantis is marking himself as a champion of voter integrity. Most Republicans use the argument of voter integrity to craft laws favorable to their elections. DeSantis goes one step further, actually producing the collars to back up his stated policy concerns. This is the sort of performative stunt that the conservative base gets all a lather over and comes with little costs. DeSantis once more picked a symbolic gesture that actually has force of law behind it to bolster his standing as the man who's there to catch the crown should Donald Trump stumble. The fact that this footage exists and will be treated by some audiences as outrageous actually helps DeSantis. He's proud. He's not shamed. Our outrage means more coverage for him. I say that this is somewhat, you know, sickening that an unsophisticated former felon could have the impulse to participate in democracy, could get the official advice that his participation passes muster, and then could find himself in handcuffs. Can you believe it? I know, says Ron DeSantis. Can you believe it? DeSantis is up by 11 points in the latest poll in his race to be reelected Florida's governor. In the prediction markets, he is at 30% to become the next Republican presidential nominee that puts him tied with Donald Trump. 
On the show today, we delve into the Ohio Senate race and last night's debate between J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan. But first, yesterday we had on the author of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. Richard Reeves explained the phenomenon of men falling behind women in many measurable ways, from educational attainment to wage increases. Today, he is back to tell us how we can help men get back to level ground if we can muster the courage to face those who might turn the conversation into an impeachment of all things male. Richard Reeves up next. Richard Reeves is back to speak of, of boys and men, why the modern male is struggling, why it matters, and what to do about it. So the last phrase in the book is titled, What to Do About It. And it got me wondering, we have a profound political problem. And so when we have a profound problem, you could ask, why isn't it being solved? Maybe it's just very hard to solve, you know, climate change. Maybe we're just lacking in political will. Maybe we don't recognize the problem. But with this phenomenon of how males are lacking in so many economic and social and educational measures, it's a little odd. If there were another problem like this with inarguable trend lines and a population that's suffering, that's also a huge demographic, we'd usually get action. You would think we'd have people and parties rushing in with solutions, but that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. I asked Reeves if he agreed with that. If so, what's his explanation? I do agree with that. I think it's a fe- it's a feature of our current p- political incentive structure where actually the, uh, the left... Uh, see it as a zero-sum game. So any discussion of boys and men, and you know, it's true if you talk to people in Congress or even in the administration, what they'll say is like we're just we can't be seen to be doing anything other than just doubling down on the issues facing women, especially right now. Right. They'll say um, talk to me when three when four hundred thirty nine of the five hundred CEOs right. aren't men and then we could talk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me when it isn't just twenty five percent women in Congress. Talk to me when we've had a female president, etc. Right. And and again, it's just a betrays a failure to think two thoughts at once and to say, look, I'm I'm with you on I I've actually called for quotas in Congress for women because I think the problem is so bad. Um so the, but the politics of this are seen as that you've got to pick a side on gender. And so there's a sense that the kind of the left is that even discussing the issues of boys and men will mean you're betraying betraying in some way your commitment to the cause of women and girls. I think that's obviously empirically wrong, given the convers- you know, given the fact. Yeah. But I also think it's politically wrong. Let me give you one example. The infrastructure bill that was just signed signed into law, bipartisan, 70% of the jobs from the infrastructure bill will go to men working class men. And it looks like disproportionately men of color, because there's a lot of Hispanic men in construction, a lot of black men in in transport. And so there you've got a bill that, I mean, actually the college loan forgiveness would help women, some of the childcare stuff would help women, but this is a bill that would specifically help working class men of all races. The only reason we know that number is because a women's think tank did the calculation in order to criticize the bill. And say right. that women that women were going to miss out on that historic investment, right? Within and the so, context of, uh, I read those I read those press releases. Uh, within the context of a, a pandemic that punished women in the workplace more than men, not 
mentioning the fact that, yeah, but it killed men more than women. Yes. They pointed out that the cure for the pandemic is going to further uh, push the cause of men. Uh, yeah, I read that and I raised some eyebrows. Yes. And it also you know, it was called a she session for a while as opposed to he. I mean, it turns out actually not to be true. Female employment has recovered a bit more strongly now than male employment. Um, but, you would, that's, but the narrative hasn't really shifted. But, but my point about that is like, can you imagine a world where you know, a president, that even Joe Biden, could say, we're doing all these things for women. Here's all the things we're doing for women. You know, say some stuff about ropes. You know what? This infrastructure bill, do you know who it's really going to help? It's going to help working class men. And we shouldn't forget the working class men. And you can lean into the Hispanic and black men thing and say this. Like the, I actually think that would be great politics. And I don't think that it would make women think, oh, he doesn't care about us anymore. I, I think th people can think two thoughts at once. And my experience of talking to people about this is like, well, duh, we know that a lot of men are struggling and boys are struggling. Like, we're not idiots. We can look around us. And so I think there's a huge political opportunity there. Meanwhile, on the right, what you see is a sort of weaponization of this grievance. They turn the real problems of men into, you know, fuel, fuel the flames of it, turn it into a grievance, vote for me and blame the left blame the feminist blame modernity say you know it's women's fault it's feminist fault it's, and the truth is it's nobody's fault there's right. so much finger pointing there are lots of pointing fingers not enough helping hands and the right the cupboard is completely bare on policies right there's nothing in the right's policy locker which is specifically aimed at boys and men it's just nostalgic nonsense for you know the world where women knew their place and real men were real men it's tucker carlson style masculinity although I, I did see help. the i did see the session that you did at brookings with marco rubio as mm. uh, a big voice yes. in trying to address the problems of men and black men and frederico wilson was who's a member of congress who's also on that commission but as you point out that commission to help black boys and men, that wasn't an easy sell among all congressional Democrats. Correct. It was it was hard won, and I think Congresswoman Wilson and and Senator Rubio uh, really actually deserve a huge amount of credit for getting it over the line. Let's see what it can do. Let's see how far it's actually willing to push the specific agenda. Like, how far will it look at the particular things that affect black, black boys and men? Um, but I'm hopeful. I mean, it's a good sign that that got through. It was signed into the law by President Trump, but it was bipartisan legislation. I think there's a huge, I think there's huge ground here. But right now, we see this huge gender gap in, in voting, a huge gap in voting in terms of attitudes towards gender. And essentially what's happened is both sides have dug in. It's like trench warfare. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and, and the left, the Democrats don't want to lose any suburban women's votes, especially suburban white women, right? They need every, everyone they turn out in November. And the right continue to benefit from the sort of grievances of working class men and the women around them uh, and who think the Democrats have gone crazy on issues of gender identity. And so they can double down on a kind of traditionalist uh, agenda. And so I think for now they're dug in um, uh, but I, yeah. you know, this, uh, this phrase after the midterms, everything will get better. I'm just, people yeah. presume have been saying that since the founding of the Republic, but you know, right. after the midterms, we'll all become sensible people. I know there's <laughs> but, that, there's that four month period when we don't look ahead to the next election yeah. forgetting after the midterms, there's a presidential election yes. and also a third yes. of the Senate and all of the house once again up for election. So do you feel like you've been wearing the, your Kanye wearing the White Lives Matter t-shirt, having written this book and being a man, being a white man, even though the 
book in in a great uh, fit of nuance points out the disparate impact of everything you're talking about on the black community. Has it been, have you been heartened by maybe even the strange bedfellows you've made or the people you wouldn't expect to agree with it? Or have you been treated as the skunk at the uh, garden party? I don't know if male skunks uh, emit smell more than female skunks. I'll look that up as you answer. I don't either. Someone will, someone will have to fact check this uh, yeah. about skunks. But I, I will say that so far I've been pleasantly surprised by the reaction, especially on the centre-left, uh, which has been one of the disagreements are ones of substance. They're like, okay, yeah, there are some problems here. We don't think you should double down. You know, you should specifically make it about boys and men. We don't agree with this policy solution. How about doing this instead? Um, the arguments have been about substance and solution, uh, which is, which, as I said, about maybe a little bit more boring uh, than sort of culture war stuff. I actually avoid the use of the word crisis by and large because, again, uh-huh. I think it's just so you're like, oh, there's a crisis. You know, it's always a crisis. You know, at what point are we going to have a crisis of crises? You know, it's the sense of engagement. And so even when people are disagreeing with me by and large on the left and the right, they're disagreeing on the substance of the argument which is what I want. What we need is a substantive argument about this. Say, look, there's some stuff happening here. How important is it? What should we do about it? And treat each other a bit more with respect around it. And what what hasn't happened is that I've just, it's, it's, I haven't yet been cast out mm-hmm. simply for raising the issue. And I think that the, what I've discovered is there is a real appetite to have this conversation as long as it's a safe conversation. If you can create a space where people feel like they can talk about this without you know, declaring feminism to be an evil and signing up for the men's rights activist group. If you give permission to people to talk about this, then everybody wants to talk about this. Literally everybody wants to talk about this personally and and in terms of public policy. And so if I've just moved the ball a little bit up the field uh, in terms of our ability to have a proper conversation about it, then I'll be incredibly happy. So far, so good. But ask me again in six months. You know, there's a cycle to these things. It's still, it's, it's too early to say, but I've been pleased thus far. Yeah. People want to talk about this. One dynamic I've observed is it comes up, and this is how policy works, when there is an acute crisis, we talk about something and not so often other times, but it comes up when there is another shooting, another mass shooting, school shooting, almost always done by a male. And then we talk about the crisis of masculinity. It goes away. But do you think you'll take that? Or do you think if that's the context we're dealing with it, we're never going to be talking about things like deaths of despair. We're going to be, in a way... Um, anathemizing men who are in a position of pain. Mm. Yeah, I, I I do worry that the debate about this is driven by the outliers, by the exceptions, um, and by the men who, the incredibly small group of men who are acting out rather than the massive group of men who are sometimes checking out um, struggling, checking out family life, checking out of their own lives by taking their own lives or be becoming so addicted to opioids. Um, those are the men that I'm really worried about. And unfortunately, if the only debate we can have about mas- masculinity is when something tragic happens, like a mass shooting, you say, see, you go, there you go. That's the crisis of masculinity. You know, I've actually had people say to me, yeah, I agree we should solve this problem. Otherwise, all the men are going to go around shooting everybody. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, actually, rates of violent crime have halved in the last few decades. 
hot. You know, we're so much more peaceful as a society now than we were, including men. And that means men, because it's men who drive most of violent crime. And so there's so much less violent crime from men. Men are so much less violent, so much less criminal, so much more peaceful today than they were even 40 years ago, that if you take the outliers of these tragic situations and then and somehow seem that that's symptomatic of, of most men, I actually fear that that has a negative effect because what it does is it tars men with that brush. It suggests that inside every man there's a potential mass shooter in just the same way that Andrea Dworkin used to argue that inside every man is a, is a potential rapist. And that's not the way into a positive conversation about masculinity and men. No, um, that doesn't because, drive you to equal the educational system, no, for instance, no, and recognize it, no, prefrontal cortex. It doesn't get you into sort of like, I, I want a thousand new technical high schools, but I'm not going to argue because I think it'd be particularly good for boys. Um, I'm not going to argue that if we build a thousand new technical high schools, that will mean we'll have less, fewer mass shooters. I just think that's just a, it's just an incredibly tortured argument. And in some ways a really unhelpful one, because what it suggests is we only want to help boys and men because if we don't, they might kill us. Mm-hmm. And that is a profoundly immoral <laughs> argument in my view. I'm interested in your exploration of this idea just as a case study in how ideas hit the zeitgeist and become internalized by society. You've written about other ideas like income inequality, where I perceive that whoever decides what goes on the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post or gets programmed on MSNBC and CNN, they're open to that. If you have a good statistic about income inequality or a good study, they will run with that. We could say something like it fits their narrative. And I take your point that mostly the uh, discussions you've had about this book are really positive, but those are people who opt into that discussion. You know, there is the dynamic of people saying, okay, you could write about what you want and I'm not going to tweet against you, but I'm certainly not going to cover it. And if I do, it won't be above the fold. But do you see that this is a harder uh, subject to get that kind of salience being achieved with? Do you, when you compare it to other things you've written about that people Mm. were at least, or at least the cultural gatekeepers were much more open to, do you see differences? Yes, this this is clearly a harder subject to get across the line in terms of some of those spaces you've talked about. Uh, and it's, but it's, it's one of the reasons I did it, because I was hopeful if you did it in the right way that you could get over the line and that there weren't very many people getting over the line. Uh, and so actually, do you use the New York Times? Um, I'm, uh, I've already had two columns written in the New York Times, one by David Brooks, one by Michelle Goldberg. Obviously, they come at it in different ways, but both thoughtful, respectful pieces. Um, and I'm hoping to do some more stuff like with, with the New York Times. Um, so to the extent that that's, that is a gatekeeper, that's been, import- that's been important. And you know, I've had been in Salon, I've, you know, the, uh, all kinds of more liberal-leaning uh, institutions. And so what I take that to mean is that there's an appetite for this conversation even among those even in those places it just takes a certain tone of voice it takes a certain approach it takes lots of reassurance <laughs> that we can think two thoughts at once uh, so it's harder for sure but i've got to tell you like the number of people who warned me against this made me even more determined to do it because i thought well wait if i sort of you know, pretty centrist, quite boring, policy wonky Brookings guy with all these charts and these ideas and, you know, 
if I can't write about it for fear of being thrown under the bus, then we're in real, real trouble. Uh, and so the more I was advised against it, the more I felt like it was important to do it because otherwise the space is just left vacant and we end up in a horrible doom loop whereby people say, well, the only people talking about these issues are the crazy people in the men's rights uh, wing. Uh, and so you didn't talk about it for fear of being seen as a crazy person <laughs> on the men's rights wing. And so the only people talking about it are the crazy people in the men's rights wing. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And unless some people step into that space and say, hey, can we talk about less, less like normal people? That doom loop will continue. And, and that's, that's the sense in which we just we, we create the problem. By just not being by not being willing to talk about it, we need more boring, banal people talking about this. Otherwise, the only people talking about it will be the incendiary reactionaries. And if that's the world you want, okay, don't talk about this. Just let them talk about it. But then don't complain if young men are flocking to them because they're the only people talking about it. Richard Reeves is an incredibly compelling firecracker of a senior fellow at the Brookings <laughs> Institution in Washington, <laughs> D.C., and is the author most recently of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And now the spiel, the final Ohio Senate debate last night pitted Republican frontrunner J.D. Vance against Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan, though at times you would be forgiven for thinking that voters were being asked to cast ballots about other people entirely. I love Nancy Pelosi. Called you Donald Trump's ass kisser. I love Nancy Pelosi. Trump administration. Nancy Pelosi. Donald Trump told a joke. Nancy Pelosi, that was the direct result of policies enacted by Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and supported 100% by Tim Ryan. You keep talking about Nancy Pelosi. If you want to run against Nancy Pelosi, move back to San Francisco and run against Nancy Pelosi. But no, it was Ryan and Vance, both looming over very strange podia. You can see the wheels, as if the moderators were admitting, this is just all for show, guys. But Ryan, who's showing in the 2020 Democratic primary for president, was a 21st place finish, by my count. And Vance, who once compared Trump to Hitler and then very much did not, seemed ready for battle. Both candidates acquitted themselves decently, judged against the measure of what a typical Ohio voter might be looking for from a candidate. In general, voters in Ohio, elsewhere, but especially in Ohio, want solutions to inflation and economic worry. They want some answers on crime and on questions like fentanyl and immigration. Now, look, I'm not saying that these are the arguments that speak to me, but polls out of Ohio show that the following arguments, as made by J.D. Vance, for the rise in violence stick in places like Ohio. The reason why we have skyrocketing gun violence in this country is because Tim Ryan and a lot of Democrats decided to declare war on America's police. That's why from Youngstown to Cleveland to Columbus to Cincinnati, we have really, really high rates of gun violence. An uncharitable but vivid description of the classic soft on crime liberal charge. 
It's exacerbated by the perception that a defund the police stance was typical of most Democrats. It wasn't. Ryan never said it. Joe Biden denounced it. But enough Democrats and no Republicans are associated with the message that it is hard for a Democrat in a rose but not crimson state like Ohio to overcome that. But Ryan tried his hardest and fans helped a little. Most Ohioans like the Second Amendment. Ryan spared some time to talk about the joys of the start of hunting season with his son, Mason. But Vance didn't just have a pro-Second Amendment stance to tout. He also brought with him some comments, some baggage to defend. There was his positive comment about Alex Jones, who Ryan was eager to point out is a Sandy Hook conspiracy theorist who just lost a jury verdict of almost a billion dollars, who was praised as credible by J.D. Vance. Here's that exchange. Guy who done that denied Sandy Hook. He's like, no, he's credible. Thank you, Congressman. I mean, you don't have to. I mean, it's, is, just, it's, is, it's maddening. This is a complete fabrication. I never JD, said that, JD, you're on tape, Tim. brother. You're on tape, I man. I never said that, Tim. You, Go and run the tape and find out exactly okay. what I It'll said. It'll be like 30 minutes, and we're I, all going to know I, you're lying. I, 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 I never said that. 30 minutes after a debate? How quaintly 2004. Immediately, the video of what Vance said about Alex Jones was posted online. We can talk about, you know, how I got in hot water with, with uh, my... my uh, with saying that Alex Jones was a more credible source of information than Rachel Maddow. But like one of the things that I saw in the reaction to that tweet was people are terrified of unconventional people, of people who don't think the thoughts that they're supposed to think. And that to me is like the opposite of what you would want in an elite. You would want an elite that's willing to think outside the box, that's willing to say, well, maybe this is like a crazy idea, uh, but maybe it's true. Or very, very much not true and will cost you a billion dollars. And you know, just as an aside, sometimes the box is good. Sometimes we need the box. Sometimes the box is for non-crazy people and outside the box is the other kind of people. Good box, it's good to have a box. Also kind of crazy was Vance's dismissal of the crimes of January 6th is something more than hooliganism. I thought Vance started with a framing that might resonate to the electorate, but Ryan took it to a better place for him. This part that I will play was a minute, 20 seconds long, but it gives you a decent glimpse into the dynamic at play. What happened on January 6th was bad. I don't like violence anywhere. I certainly don't like it at the United States Capitol. But the media obsession and Tim Ryan's obsession with this issue, while people can't afford the cost of groceries, where his policies have made it impossible for people to support their families, where we have a massive border security problem, where we know that big tech companies were actively being involved in the 2020 election in a way that hid Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's corruption, we can talk and think about a lot of different issues. And I think the political media's obsession with January 6th suggests they're not actually paying attention to the concerns of everyday voters in this state who are getting crushed by the policies that you supported. You know, you can walk and chew. We're, we're a very complicated democracy here. But we can walk and chew gum at the same time. If, some, if a group of people storm the Capitol while we're trying to file the paperwork for an election, and, and they're trying to prevent that from happening, and they want to kill the vice president. Like, that needs to be looked into. Like, are we really have you want to sweep it under the rug? Like, I don't want to talk about this any more than anybody else. I want to talk about jobs. I want to talk about wages. I want to talk about pensions. I want to talk about making sure that people have, you know, dignity. But my God, you got to look into it, J.D. 
No, he doesn't. Not if the determinant of what the voters of the state demand. We saw in one debate the entire phenomenon of J.D. Vance. He's kind of eloquent. You can see why he was an attractive candidate among those who were looking for a Republican to authentically speak to the working class. But he's also really willing to take extremist stances. Pro-Trump, pro-Alex Jones, insurrection, incuriosity. And it was thought that this maybe put him in the position, like some other Republicans are, of being too extreme for the electorate. A bad choice. An own goal. Only, doesn't seem like he is. The virtues, such that they are, of his candidacy, smart guy, doesn't trip over his words, enjoys the support of the party's ultimate kingmaker, that, it looks like, is going to see him through to election day. Tim Ryan had a pretty good debate J.D. Vance benefits from a very favorable landscape. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. No lie, you can check it in 30 minutes. It'll still be there. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Gperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening. This is a great person who I've really gotten to know. Yeah, he said some bad things about me, but that was before he knew me, and then he fell in love. <laughs> 